299 of the Survival Podcast, which means tomorrow, 3,300. I like round numbers. I'm weird that way. And it will be an expert counsel show and close out the week. So that works out very good for people with uh, an obsession with numbers and patterns, I guess, like myself. Anyway, it's probably not most of you. I think people like me are the minority that like pay attention to stuff like that. Anyway, uh, we're going to do a good one today. It is a Just Jack show. We're going to talk about the real green revolution starting in your own backyard and how it's a bigger thing than just saving the planet, right? We're going to talk about how this is actually the best thing for the individual, the best thing for the community, the best thing for the environment as well. But it's also about revitalizing economies, rebuilding communities. One of the most common questions that I get, I know Nicole Sauce gets the question all the time because she's really good at community building. But I would say everybody in this space right now, everybody in the like when I started back in 08 doing this show, you had to kind of push the idea of community on people. People wanted survival groups, but not community. A group was like you and your brother in law and you're going to get this bunker in Montana. Right. Like but. Over the 15 years we've been doing the show, and it is 15 years now, and Dorothy and I are looking for a venue. We're probably going to be doing a uh, anniversary party, 15-year anniversary party sometime in July. We were looking at August, but Nicole Sauce wants to be there and has a commitment in August, so we're probably going to move it up to July rather than out and push it up against uh, the big TSP workshop of the year. Uh, so if you uh, you want to start kind of, gauging whether or not you can come. It'll be in Dallas. It's going to be like a three-hour party. I people came to the 10-year from like Chicago and stuff like that. I don't expect anybody to do that, but if, if anybody's thinking about it, I'm going to at least throw out kind of the, the range somewhere probably about mid-July, definitely after the 4th of July holiday. Anyway, nothing to do with today's show. We're going to revitalize things. This is always kind of off on that side tangent. Um, you had to push the idea of community. People didn't want community. They want either solo or group. And over the years, I think more and more understanding about the real nature of the long emergency that we're really dealing with, which is the degradation of Western culture, uh, strain on resources, ridiculous levels of inflation, et cetera. People started to realize, hey, you know, the reason that our grandparents, great grandparents, great great grandparents did so well in spite of the really hard times uh, that came around those three generations is. They work together. So all of a sudden, everybody wants to build community, build community. And the flaw in it, I often find, is I want to build a group, a community of people that are all into the things that I'm into and only the things that I'm into. And we all agree about everything and we're all libertarians. And, you know, okay, so you want to build something that doesn't exist. And there are things that, you, that never existed that we build all the time, but they're usually technology, speech of engineering and things like that. When you don't have a thing that involves living beings, you're probably not going to engineer it or build it. So there, there's been a history of strong community in our country and in Western culture and in the world. From from the, the, the Saharan Sahel of Africa to the jungles 
of South America to the Far East to right here in the United States, if you are from here, there's been a history of strong communities. And a lot of times there has been some ideology at the core. So a town might have a church and everybody goes to the church and that's kind of the social hub of the town. But you know, as the town gets larger, you got Methodists, you got Catholics, you got Episcopalians, you got Jewish people, et cetera. So you end up with multiple houses of worship. You still had a strong community, even though they had a different religious background. I know growing up in rural Pennsylvania in my uh, teenage years, there, you know, there was a, a vast array of people from a religious, spiritual standpoint of what their beliefs were. And there was also a vast array of people with different cultural. We had a lot of Polish people, a lot of Lithuanians, Ukrainians, like my family, Irish, like was the like everybody was Slovakian, Eastern Europe, and then the Irish because of the coal mines. Right. And, and yet we all got along and everybody's everybody was friends. And the idea that you wouldn't be friends with somebody because they went to another church or because they were Irish and you were Ukrainian. Like my grandmother would have twisted my, I would have a cauliflower ear today if I had ever said such a thing. Like community was about, is this person a good person and are they part of our community and do they contribute in some way to, uh, to make the whole place better? And that was not, and Hunter is saying rule number one, don't be a dick, right? That's the famous Nicole sauce line when she does briefings, right here at our workshops. Rule one, don't be a dick, right? If you're not a dick, everybody will get along. And, and that's kind of what it was. Rule number one, don't be a dick. And um, that naturally creates community. People are social creatures. That's why you follow somebody on, you know, any social media or Noster or what have you, and somebody posts a picture of what they cooked for dinner that night, and if it looks appealing, you're like, oh, that's cool. And you say something back, right? The two people that have never met in real life discussing what one made for dinner, even very, very briefly like that, even the acknowledgement with like a thumbs up or something shows you that we have a social component to us. We are, and I'm going to use a word that some of you are going to get all freaked out and somebody that doesn't know me is going to call me a leftist or some stupid shit. And I'm sure somebody else will call me a right wing nut job by the end of this because when you're common sense, then you get called both by both sides in our area of tribalism. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, in socialism, we are socialists in a way. If you use that word not as a system of governance, but as an adjective, in that we do collectively share voluntarily, by the way, when people leave us alone and allow for it to occur. And we do have sociopaths and psychopaths who want power above all things and control above all things, et cetera. And those people generally are the people in government that say we need them. When you get government out of the way and you don't give the nonproductive psychopath a position of power, they become ostracized and they either find a way to fit in or they go away. And in traditional tribal societies, the people that exhibited psychopathic and sociopathic traits, what would happen is the men of the tribe would take them aside and say, you know, what's going on? Are you, you know, are you afraid or that you, you need all this stuff or whatever? And, they, or, you know, what's your deal? And, and then they would kind of have it out and they would basically say, so either this shit's going to cease or you're going to have to go. And that guy might get one or two discussions and then he would either be uh, thrown out or they would just like, he would disappear. And I'll leave it to you to figure out what happened to him. Maybe the other hunters in the tribe would be tired of him. And the next time they were playing a drum, it would be from the skin of his back. 
Who knows, right? But those people were not tolerated in these traditional societies. And we don't live in a place like that now. And I don't want to. I'm not advocating. I'm just saying that we need to start maybe not making a, a, a drum from the skin of their back, but they need to be put to the side and ignored as best we can as we continue along with our solutions. And so we're going to go through a whole bunch of things today. Before we do, though, I do want to remind you about our two sponsors of the day. Uh, sponsor of the day number one today is Paul Wheaton's 2023 Permaculture Technology Jamboree. This is going to be from July 3rd through the 14th. You certainly don't have to stay for all the days. It is a multi-track thing with some of the best instructors you'll ever meet. Everything that you want to know how to build from a permaculture standpoint, produce your food, produce your heat, save your food, um, uh, eco-building, everything you can think of in the space, the kind of stuff we're going to talk about today, you can learn from some of the most influential and best experts on the planet. And what a cool place to spend some of your summer Missoula, Montana, in the mountains with the Yeti himself, Paul Wheaton. So check this out, because what's going on right now is pretty cool. A BOGO sale, right? This is a somewhat expensive event to attend, but you can buy one ticket and get one ticket free. And this is what I'm going to suggest to my audience right now. Get on, you know, Noster. Get on Twitter. Get wherever we amass. Get on Discord. Get in the Telegram channel if you want to go and say, look, I want to go to this thing. If you don't have somebody to take with you, find someone who you want to, to go with you and split the cost and each take a ticket. I don't know how long this is going to last. Paul said it will be at least through the next week or two, uh, but it will run out. So I would go ahead and get your extra ticket for free while you can. Really consider going to this thing. Next up, I'm not going to bring it up on the screen for the video, but um, I do want to uh, to let you guys uh, give you guys a reminder again uh, about the exit and build conference that I will be speaking at next week. I'll be speaking next Saturday, not this week. So you still got time. There's still some VIP tickets left. I'm waiting to get some photographs from John of the last VIP dinner because I've been to two of his VIP dinners so far. The first one was at a really cool venue. Uh, it was like a farm and restaurant in one, and it was cool. But the second one was way more up my alley. He had KNC cattle catered at his house. That's what he's doing again. I'm going to tell you this. That meal, that meal, that pile of beef, that cow being raised a few miles down the road, fed on grass its whole life, and expertly cooked for you. And I don't mean like a couple pieces of meat. I mean, I saw guys way bigger than me eat till they couldn't move. I mean, couldn't move to eat anymore, and there was still more to eat. It was amazing. Uh, Builder of Castles says, how much does Exit and Build cost? Uh, well, you sign up for free to get the virtual experience, and then you have options. And I don't off the top of my head know all of the pricing. But go ahead and go ahead and use the link that's in the video notes below and fill out the little form, your name and email address, and that'll get you, if nothing else, you'll have access to be able to watch the parts because not all of it, but a lot of it is going to be able, you're going to be able to view it for free. You can also buy a deeper virtual experience where you get everything that can be given to you across the internet. 
or you can buy in-person tickets and you can upgrade to the VIP. And I don't remember the price, uh, but it is very reasonable for what it is. And again, that meal, the meal and the experience of the VIP dinner alone is probably worth the trip and the cost of the ticket. Um, if you went to a restaurant and ate that much steak of that quality, you're talking several hundred bucks a plate. I'll just put it. Yeah, I don't know how they do it for what they do, but it's very cool. All right. So let's start digging into this. I want to start off with whenever you and I want to kind of point paint to point to a common theme today with all of this. Um, the government and the industries that are behind like the World Economic Forum, Agenda 2030, all that have literally ruined perfectly good words. When I said socialism earlier, some of you probably bristled a little bit, especially if you've never heard me talk about socialism as an adjective versus a system of governance before. You can have completely voluntary socialism. Most human beings do, and it generally works out very well. And it doesn't involve one person stealing from another. It involves everybody making a contribution and seeing certain things as common property, right? And so... You can't have a conversation with somebody unless they're willing to truly listen. And usually in a podcast format, you get that so you can do it um, and use a word like that without people all of a sudden flipping out, and start calling you libtard or whatever. Right. And there's other words that you can use. And all of a sudden you're a, a, an ultra MAGA extremist. Right. Uh, Trump tart or whatever. And they've ruined and they've ruined so many words and concepts like this. So. When you saw the title of this Green Revolution, even if you're like, oh, I know it's Jack, so I know it's not that, probably the first thing that you felt, and it's why I used it, is, oh, environmental wacko doodleism or something like that. And so much of this has been ruined, and the government has ruined the word green. They've ruined the word environmentalism. I had neighbors in Arkansas, and we lived there for a few years. Uh, and and I remember one day, uh, Lisa, the, the, the matriarch of the family, she said, I don't believe in environmentalism. Now, these people grew their own food. They were hunters. They were fishermen. They lived out in the woods. They were nature people. Uh, they were very much environmentalists. Like, And so I said, if somebody just took a dump truck of garbage and drove it up here and dumped it in your backyard, would you be okay with that? She said, no. And I said, why? And she explained in very articulate ways why and how that was bad and everything. I said, well, that's environmentalism. What she meant was I don't believe in global warming alarmism, but it became synonymous with environmentalism. I am a stark, raving, mad environmentalist. I am a redneck hippie duck farmer, just like it says on my shirt right here. But I am not into crazy-ass, nonsensical BS hysteria that in 10 years the oceans are going to drown Miami. The government pushes that, the industry pushes that, and then the wealthiest among them buy coastal property. So we know they're full of shit, but we also have to be cognizant of the fact that a lot of things I'm going to say today, when you feel that bristling, that's why I have this intro segment that I'm about to go into right now so that you can start to decouple yourself from being unwilling to use words because they've tried to ruin them. Language control is straight out of 1984. And it's straight out of the, you know, if there was a tyrant's Bible, and maybe somebody could write that, the tyrant's Bible, advice on how to be a tyrant, a tyrannical government with the velvet 
coated steel glove, right? And then maybe when people read that, they would see the pattern around them. But um, that's that's right out of Tyrant's Bible. You change the meaning of words. You make some words words that meant one thing now mean another. You confuse everybody in the Bible, a Tower of Babel. Let us confound their language. Yeah, there, there's philo- deep philosophy throughout history about confounding language and how that enables division and division enable control. So as we start out, I'm going to give you why the government's plans to make the world green cannot ever possibly succeed. Number one, first of all, there is no government running the plan. The government is like, it's like having somebody shoot somebody with a gun and blaming the gun. When your government does a thing and you blame the politicians, no matter how stupid they are, I don't care if it's AOC or Kamala Harris or the Republicans that I brought you on Monday talking about cannabis and saying things like, you can have two ounces under this bill. That's three whole joints, right? I don't care how stupid the politician sounds. In fact, the dumber the politician, the more accurate the point I'm making is. A gun is the dumbest thing on the planet, right? It's as dumb as any other physical innate object. Like, it's as dumb as this little measuring cup right here. It's as dumb as my coffee cup. And when I say dumb, I don't mean that the thing itself is stupid. I mean, it has no t- intelligence. A gun doesn't think. If, if guns don't work for you, think about it like power tools. If you take a, 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 a skill saw and you're cutting plywood and you put your thumb on the line... And you cut your thumb off, does the saw get the blame or does the operator get the blame? So your government is a saw. It's a tool. It's a gun. It's whatever you, whatever analogy works for you. And the people at the helm, the operators, are corporations. So the idea that government will fix a problem in of itself is a flawed thought because not only is government incompetent and proven itself incapable of solving problems, it has no vested interest in solving problems. It has a vested interest in maintaining power and control and serving its masters. And its masters are the ones that pay the bills. And if you want to understand how absolutely insane it is to ever put any faith in government solving a problem, you have to understand you're dealing with power-hungry sociopaths. And once you understand that you're basically dealing with people who are addicted to power the way a meth addict is addicted to meth, then you stop believing this. And there's a picture that went around yesterday. I put it out on some social media. It's Diane Feinstein, who I don't care if they said she had shingles. I think she had a stroke. And if you look at her face, you can see it. But she looks like she's about to die. Returning to the Senate in a wheelchair. 89 years old, worth over $100 million. Now, I have a plan to do this show for at least another 15 years. That'll put me at 65. That'd be a 30-year career in podcasting, and I, I think that's my minimum. But there's a point where I don't want to work anymore, and I think most people feel that way. And if you handed me $100 million right now, I would probably employ a staff to do 90% of the organizational work for me and keep doing this podcast two or three days a week for something to do and because I love it. But I would definitely take a step back. Almost no politician has ever retired 
when they were able to maintain power. I can tell you one that I can think of. And I mean in modern times. I know George Washington set the precedent and all with only running for two terms. I'm talking about Congress clowns and shit like that. And, and that was uh, Ron Paul. Ron Paul is like the unicorn in, in the room. That's why Ron Paul is part of my expert council, because he is that unicorn. And uh, all the rest of them, they, they retire when they know they're not going to get reelected. And they don't need the job. Most of the jobs in Congress pay 180, 200,000 a year. And these people in four years are multimillionaires. There's no other profession in the world with that pay that has that percentage of them that become millionaires. And it's not because they're smart. We know that, right? So it's in a power addiction. And what I said about this picture of Feinstein is when you look at that picture, don't see old age. That's not old age. That's when you watch cops and you see somebody who is in prison for like the 18th time and they show you their mugshot from that 18th time and they just, they're missing teeth, their faces caved in, they have sores on their face, et cetera. And they show you the first picture from their first booking and it was like two and a half years ago and they look like a normal person and meth did that to them, you know, or heroin did that to them. That's power. When you look at these politicians, these old haggly politicians, that's the power. And so they don't serve you. And I don't want to make this political. I want to move on. But it's really important that you just put that away. It's not going to happen. The bureaucrats and politicians on top of serving their masters are also incompetent. None of these people are competent. None of them are competent. One more time. None of them. So they can't fix. Incompetent people can't fix complex problems. So you have incompetent Monopoly monopolized uh, use of force at the behest of corporations who seek above all profit. You've got the drones are the politicians who seek power. The corporations seek profit. They're going to make the world all nice and green. We're on our own. It's not going to happen. And besides, I know some of you still have trouble with this. If we cut CO2 in half from where it is right now, it's not going to change the temperature of the planet. CO2 actually has a warming effect on the planet and it's happened and it's been done. And there's a, uh, this is a scientific fact. This is not my opinion. CO2 only blocks a very narrow band of UV wavelengths of light. And there's enough CO2 in our atmosphere that it's done what it can. And the people that shriek the most about climate change. And I love the ones I did my research. I talked to experts. I did this. I did. Okay, great. And you take every single one of them, every single one of them and say, okay, this all comes from the IPCC. And if they know what that means, you don't have to explain what the IPCC is. If not, you have to explain it to them. Right. And, and then, oh yeah. Okay. Okay. So according to the IPCC's model that all of this is based on, CO2 directly, this is their opinion, not mine, doesn't have that much of an effect at this point. But CO2 causes four primary feedbacks. Tell me those four feedbacks. And they can't. They can't give you one, let alone all four. Well, you haven't done your research. So if you have trouble with what I just said, and at the same time, you can't tell me the four primary feedbacks in the IPCC model for global warming, i.e. climate change, because warming doesn't always happen, so we need a new name then you have yet to do your research. You can, Maybe I'm wrong, but you haven't done your research. You haven't gone as far with the research as me. 
And I'm not going to give them to you because you can find them if you really want to. So we're not going to save the planet by cutting CO2 because that's not going to reduce the amount of mercury in our oceans, the PCBs in our water, the toxins in our food, the radioactive race that they call phosphates that they're dumping on our farm fields, the desertification of broad swaths of arable land where we grow all our food. And I could keep going. It's not going to fix the sulfur that goes into our groundwater from coal mining. There's this litany of extensive environmental damage that none of this is going to fix. However, it is related to fossil fuel use and moving things around in this constant expenditure of energy. So limiting that with proper things that actually make our world better individually does make sense. See, I'm a right-wing extremist and a left-hard at the same time, right? That means maybe you're listening to somebody that actually thought about the stuff that's coming out of his mouth before he said it. All right, moving on. So I want to kind of contrast my typical morning. We'll use this morning as an example of what, what happened from the time I got up to the typical person in the street, you know, 19, 20-something years old, shrieking all the time about the planet melting and the ocean boiling, right? So I got up this morning. I made myself a cup of coffee in my little French press, a little organic uh, whole cream in it, and sat and contemplated my day while my wife went and got our kids to homeschool, which we have now taken out of the state's system. And I thought about what I was going to do, what I was going to talk about on the show today, came up with this topic, made some bullet points, et cetera. It doesn't really pertain to what we're talking about yet. But then I went to make another cup of coffee. When I went to make another cup of coffee, I strained all the coffee grinds out of my filter and put it into my composter, right? And so before the sun was all the way up, I was actively engaged in making compost, Looking at the stuff that was in the compost thing after my wife left, it was time to go outside. I took it outside with me. I put some of it in the worm bin, and I put some of it in the duck compost pit because some of the things weren't suitable for worms, like some citrus rind and stuff like that. So I was making compost before most of these people that shriek were out of bed. I then went out to my garden and pruned up some of my tomato plants and started training them up onto uh, the thing. I fed my ducks. I harvested a Zola, which is a carbon sequestration plant, out of my aquatic systems and added it to the feed for the ducks. My grandkids got here. I went back out to the garden with my granddaughter and taught her about growing food this morning and plant propagation. Okay. That's my morning before 8.30. I'm not bragging. That's not a big deal. It's something anybody can do. But your typical person that's shrieking probably rolled out of bed about 8 o'clock, went to Starbucks for avocado toast and a latte, and then is going to go to a college class where they're going to be indoctrinated into all their bullshit and has never grown a freaking leaf of basil in their life. And this is where all the shrieking is really coming from, people who like ideas, but they have no practical experience. And everything on the planet, everything on the planet, is designed to, to make more and more of those dumb people and less and less of people that are active. And somebody's asking about ICTP. It is, Mike, it is IPCC is what you're looking for. That's, that's 
That's what you're looking for. You can Google that and see what it means. I'm not giving, I'm not spoon feeding information. Yet. Anyway, the backyard garden, I, I personally feel is the foundation for everything. Like we need as many backyard gardens as we can get. We need millions of new backyard gardens. And the reason I think the backyard garden is the foundation of anything, everything is because anybody can do it just about anywhere. Now, if you live in a, you know, 350 square foot studio in Manhattan and you don't even have a little outdoor area and you keep your clothes in your stove, maybe it would be very hard to grow some sprouts in your sink, but you could at least do that, but you're not going to grow a true garden. But even the person that lives in an apartment with an outside patio can do some container gardening. And I, I find it implausible that except in the most extreme circumstances that there is anybody even if you don't directly have a place to grow food, you can't find a place where somebody would let you grow food. So I believe it's something that everybody can do. One of the loads that we all put on the systems, and, and always understand when somebody says the system, they mean well, but they're not being technically accurate. There is no system. There is a myriad of interconnective and interactive at their edges systems that keep people alive and at the same time control the narrative and they control society. So if you look at, you know, like the food system, well, okay, what, what good is our current food system in its current model without a transportation system? And I won't keep going, but you can keep making those interconnections yourself. And what good is that without what? An economic system. So if you don't have a system of economics so people are incentivized to grow the food, then you're not going to have a food system. And if you don't have a transportation system, you can't get the food to the people. And if you don't have an electrical infrastructure system, if you went back 100 years, a lot of food that we can just, it's cheap, it's easily accessible, it's everywhere. You can't even get it back then because we didn't have the infrastructure to produce the type of food that we had. There's good and bad in that. So it's the systems. But when we start growing any of our own food, we take at least some of our individual load off that system. And I think, again, if you can do something like that, you should. And you should do it, one, because I think it is a good thing for the planet. I think it's good for people. I think it's good for the environment. I think that the, the largest polluter in the world today is not mining. It's not oil extraction. It's not power generation. The largest true polluter, because, again, the systems are interconnected, is agriculture. Agriculture uses a massive shit ton of fossil energy. But it also uses a massive shit ton of toxins. And it does a, ma a massive amount of environmental degradation through the loss of topsoil to the point where I've said this before. but And people don't believe me when I say it, but anybody that goes out and does enough research to confirm it, finds that it's true, the largest export of the United States by tonnage we get no money for, and it's extremely valuable. It's topsoil. Our country, on the wind and water, into our oceans, rivers and streams, exports from our shores to the ocean more topsoil by tonnage than any other 10 commodities that we export put together. And it is the thing that makes you live. We owe all life on our planet 
to a foot of topsoil and the fact that it rains. You take that away, every living thing on this planet is dead. Every living thing on this planet is dead. Maybe some bacteria and shit, but in general, you need rain and you need soil for life to exist as we know it. And agriculture is a horrible, horrible thing from an environmental standpoint. It doesn't have to be. I mean, the most environmentally sustainable form of agriculture is raising animals that have red meat that eat grass on perennial pastures. And the animal eats the grass, fertilizes the grass, and the grass grows back. But we don't do that. We grow 50,000 acre plus of oats or wheat or rice or soy. And it's incredibly damaging. Every calorie you grow is a calorie you don't have to buy. So it's not just better quality for you. Now, if you start a garden tomorrow and you produce half your own food, 25% of your own food, 10%, 100% of your own food, what is your contribution to the whole of reduction? And it is not even a rounding error. It is like removing an atom from a car and pretending it matters. If you, if you take it as I have done a thing for everybody else, you've done a thing for yourself. But the way we motivate society is through individual incentive. Your life is better and you contributed that one atom that you've removed. But what happens when a hundred trillion atoms are removed. There's no car anymore. So if we can get enough people doing this, the law of large numbers takes over and we don't need a hundred percent. I'll tell you why I think 25% is a good number to strive for later, but that's the backyard garden. The next step in my opinion, and it can be concurrent is to start replacing all of the, not even all, some of the bullshit landscaping plants with things that produce food whether they're food for us or whether they're food for livestock and animals. So instead of box elders, maybe we plant blueberries or blackberries or raspberries. And I think in the suburban situation, the smaller lots, the shrubs and the dwarfed or pruned to dwarf size fruit trees are some of the best ways to go. And I don't even remember all the specifics, but I came up with an idea. It never really got traction, probably because I made it too complicated, called the 10% Project. And the purpose of the 10% Project back when I conceived of it was to get Americans to replace 10%, 10% of the ornamental plantings in the country, just so one in 10, with something that produced something edible. And I ran the numbers, and it was something like 500 million tons of food a year based on owner-occupied structure and, and, you know, the average lot size and how many trees and bushes were in the I, I went through a bunch of shit, but it was, it was a phenomenal amount of food. This would also reduce the demand for food, and it would reduce food prices. So it's, it, you have tremendous individual uh, incentive to do this. But it also actually really quickly would start to pull away from the load on all of these systems. The next thing would be just to think about the fact that even a small holding, you know, a third of an acre, a half acre, an acre, an acre will wear you out if you design it right. I mean, you'd be like, I don't need anymore. I don't want anymore. I could see, like, honest to God, I could see myself if I got like a 25 acre property clearing an acre of it, maybe another acre for a pond and the rest is being woods and, and 
being that's it. That's all I'm getting older. That's all I need. Uh, so even that small holding can grow a lot of the material you would want for, let's say, cooking, reducing the energy demand a, a, a significant amount. Whether it's done with some, you know, of Paul Wheaton's rocket, uh, rocket burning technology, rocket mass heaters, rocket mass ovens, all of that stuff, or it's it's just done with very simple things. Very simple wood cook stoves outside and stuff like that. I mean, you just look at something like you start growing fodder for rabbits and you're growing a couple of hedgerows of white mulberry and willow and you're going to end up every year removing a tremendous amount of mass from those trees to feed your bunnies. But you're going to have a lot of stuff they're not going to want. I mean, you're talking one year coppicing of uh, white mulberry and willow, and you're looking at some of the stock being as thick as your wrists. When you build a nice little wood cook stove, especially using like a rocket stove technology, you don't need a lot of material to, to cook your breakfast or to cook dinner. And if you only did that once or twice a week, it starts to really move the needle in the right direction. And it also, I want to talk about how this all becomes viral in a minute too. Like when you start doing these things, other people notice and they start asking you how and then you're instead of evangelizing you're teaching and i'd much rather teach than evangelize larry says my garden is 3500 square feet and it's more that i can keep up with alone and i bet you his 3500 square feet when he says that he means like the area around the garden i bet you there's rows and spaces in between and maybe he's cultivating a thousand two thousand square feet of cultivation Right. It's it, you know, that's the area that the stuff's being grown in, not the square footage that's planted. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, Larry, you can correct me if I am. But in general, like, people say like I have a 2000 square foot garden. Well, I have a 2000 square foot area. And then maybe they have half of it's actually growing food. And I'm going to tell you right now, I have my four beds, those beds, like, you know, 32, 64 uh, and 64. They're like 250 square feet a piece. So I've got a thousand square foot in my beds. That's, I, 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 I'm planting flowers. I, I've got enough stuff in that I'm planting flowers. Oh, no, Larry says that's a bed. So you're an ambitious man, Larry. You're an ambitious man. Uh, so he's got 3,200 square foot growing area. That's pretty badass, dude. Uh, I, I'm telling you, my stuff's about, a thousand to twelve hundred square feet, something in that range, and it's it's more. Now we eat a lot of meat, so depending on how much vegetable you eat, but these small homesteads can grow a tremendous amount of their fuel and fodder using coppices, and there's a lot of opportunity to start spreading out. Then, so right now, I don't grow rabbits. I'm not going to grow rabbits. I, I, I wish I had rabbits, but I don't want to do, I don't need another thing. I have ducks, I have chickens, I have gardens, I have ponds. And it's enough to keep up with. If my neighbor wanted to grow a rabbit tree, I, I do have a lot of land that would grow fodder trees. And we planted a lot of them this fall. But if they were willing, I mean, I would up up it. I would drip irrigate. I would set up a rabbit Fedge, right? A food hedge for rabbits that's specifically just for those rabbits. One dude with a rabbit tree could easily feed three or four families, especially if they didn't have to worry about food, food inputs. If those three or four families simply provided food for the rabbits, I mean, you're golden. 
you are absolutely golden with that. So it naturally starts to create these synergies in this community working together. And then maybe one guy's really the heavy-duty gardener, and that gardener is going to need rabbit turds, which if the if the rabbit dude is like, look, rabbits are my thing. I have a job. I go to work every day. I take care of the rabbits. I don't want a garden. Well, the, 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 the rabbit dude can give poo to the gardeners, and the gardeners can give food to the rabbit dude, who's also providing rabbits in return for the food. But it, it keeps going because those gardeners are going to have garden waste that's useful for rabbits. So now you have this complete total loop beginning to form. We can start designing communities within neighborhoods, but we do it in a very organic way. But it all, it's all about, it's all about beginning by having somebody go first. And when somebody brings up an idea, hey, well, what if you did that? Well, I don't know how. Well, what if I helped you do it, but you did that thing? Like if I'm a rabbit dude, I'm talking to all my neighbors about, hey, we can put a, like, this is what a willow hedge looks like. It's really cool. Or this is what a mulberry hedge looks like. It's really cool. And maybe even I'll take care of it. Or if you want rabbits, all I need you to do is this much in a bucket over the fence, you know, once once every other day or something like that. And then I have feed that you're taking care of. And maybe I'll even come over and do the, 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 the major cutback at the end of season every year. And maybe we come up with some way to process that together and make tree hay for the rabbits with a little baler. And we have all the bass material and we can do other things with that material. And we'll talk about that in a bit, right? There's so much that can be done in the suburbs if you pick the right suburbs. And, and more on that in a bit as well. Because there are places like HOA Carentown, this isn't happening. You have to get away from there. Of course, you guys know what I think about HOAs. They are the devil. Um, and backyard livestock can provide a ton of protein and fat. People might say, well, if you eat rabbits, you can eat rabbit starvation. Okay, so tell me you know nothing about human biochemistry without saying it, because you just did. Um, the whole rabbit poisoning thing is not a thing. What rabbit poisoning was in Mountain Men, in the time that the whole idea came up, was people starving to death because they didn't have any fat. It's not too much protein. It's too little fat. If you If you deprive a human... Of carbohydrates and a human eats zero carbohydrates their entire life, they can live and be a very healthy human. If you take either protein or fat to zero or near zero, you will kill a person. So we need protein and fat. You know what has one of the most complete, amazing fats for humans to consume? An egg. An egg. So if you have chickens and eggs or ducks and eggs or rabbits and eggs, you have protein and fat. And this, again, we're back to synergies here. I'm the chicken dude. You're the rabbit dude. I got eggs. You've got bunnies. I got food for your rabbits. You know, you got poop for my garden and my garden grows food for my chickens or what have you. There's so much synergy there, but we can produce a lot of protein and fat. And I'm not going to stop eating beef no matter how much protein comes off my property. I grow a lot of fish. We do quite a bit with coal birds as well. But... Man, I, I, I like some, some beef, and I don't really have a neighbor. I have a guy down the road that I, I'll buy a cow from once in a while, but I get most of my beef now because of the deal I have with ButcherBox from ButcherBox. And most people in the suburbs, you're not going to have somebody that's had a, you know, growing a few head of cattle down the road from you. 
but if we just eat less and not because beef is bad, but if we just eat less because other things, variety is good. We're in a better situation and we are in a better situation. Okay. To transition to grass fed beef from KFO beef, because one place, the vegans, vegetarians, et cetera, are completely right. I totally agree with them. Yes. I'm going left hard again, right? I'm, you're a leftist. I, I totally agree with the vegans that it's a horrible system to, to produce animal protein in a CAFO. It's harmful. It's cruel. It produces a shitty product. It's awful for the environment. I completely agree. But it's also not the way to do it. It's not even the most economically sensible way to do things. There is no way it makes more economic sense for a farmer to put his cows on a truck in East Texas, ship them out near Lubbock, to a CAFO where they spend the last six weeks of their life walking through shit up to their armpits, gorging on corn until their last miserable day, and then have that meat shipped all the way back to East Texas to sell it to people in a supermarket. There's no way the economics of that actually make more sense except in a phony, fake, fiat economy. That's the only way that makes sense. You subsidize it with government money. You subsidize the government money itself. You subsidize transportation. Like, if you take that away, then every farmer would simply keep their gra- their beef on the grass for an extra six months with zero input costs and sell as direct as they can to the consumer, even if not direct, as direct. There wouldn't be six stages in between. Yeah. So as we begin to produce more of our own protein and fat in the backyard, then we can reduce pressure on that system. And give that system more time to transition because it does need to transition. See, there's another word they've ruined. I say transition, you probably think of drag queens, right? Or you think of the complete environmental loonies that think we're going to transition to zero energy use or something. There's a lot of use for the word transition. I transitioned from a full-time corporate entrepreneur to a solopreneur. I did that. My transition was starting this podcast as first a hobby and then a side hustle. Right. So we need there's a lot of transitions that we need to make in society. And that's just one of them. The next is small homesteads or a virus. It spreads to neighbors. When people come here, they're blown away. And even at times a year, I'm like, I'm kind of embarrassed to show this to you. Like this is, you know, this is midsummer when things are at their 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 midsummer darth, except for the irrigated gardens. Or they come like in February, like everything's scorched earth cold. And they're still like, how do you do all this? You come here right now and you're like, whoa, what? How, how do you? And that's the beauty. When somebody says how, you've got the most important thing when it comes to spreading an ideology or a technique or a mindset. Permission. And homesteads are viral. If your neighbor can see over the fence and they're not a Karen or a Kyle, right, or boy Karen, I think is a better derogatory term for those people, um, you're going to start getting questions about how. Well, then you're allowed to tell. See, when somebody says how or can you help me, like that's permission. The other thing is you will definitely produce surplus. We do not need to sell all surplus. If you can sell surplus, you should. Uh, I'm all for making things pay for themselves or making a profit. But I also believe there's a profit in different forms of capital. 
And it's been a long time since I've gone through the eight forms of capital. I don't have time to do it today, but maybe next week we'll do a show on the eight forms of capital. And one form of capital is social capital, which is your ability to influence others. Um, but there's also just other ways that we can develop value and capital. It, it's another one of those words that has been ruined and not so much. Well, it left has done a good job of ruining capitalism as a word, but capital itself has been ruined by the larger educational paradigm as a whole, both right and left to where we see capital as money. That's what capital is. A equals L plus C. Classic accounting formula. I think they actually changed it now, but that's what I learned back when I took accounting. Assets equals liability plus capital. So we think of capital that way. But are you going to tell me that somebody with a million followers on pick your social media, if it doesn't have capital, they don't have capital. And what makes it capital is that it can be converted from one form of capital to another. If you have something that is this fungible and it's not fungible in equal units that we usually think of that word, but fungible in that it will exchange. Then you have a capital. And so that person with a million followers can exchange it for physical or, or, or monetary capital because they can sell that influence or they can sell something to their audience and directly profit from. But there's a lot of other ways that that capital can be leveraged. If their greatest desire in the world is to educate others, they can use that platform to provide education to those people. And not everybody's going to learn, but a lot of them will. And they've actually exchanged their capital into somebody else's capital. Do you understand that? Does that make sense? If I teach you something, I've used my social capital, my ability to influence to generate education, right? To generate knowledge capital, right? To develop experiential capital in another person. That's what teaching really is. The transference of knowledge is the use of my ability to influence you, which unlike a lot of schools is not contrived. And then you actually are the one that profits, but I've exchanged my knowledge and my influence into capital that you now have. I've redistributed my own capital voluntarily. And hopefully that viral network continues and you continue to educate others and we develop capital that way. And small homesteads are the viral means by which this begins to happen. We start developing our neighborhoods based on property value, not equaling only taxed value. One of my favorite people in the world, and I'm about to talk about some books that really drive this point home in a minute, uh, was Toby Hemingway. And he called this uh, liberation perma permaculture and that I can drastically increase the value of my home. But the guy from the city who does my tax value to tax me doesn't understand the value of a garden. He doesn't understand the value of an ecosystem. He doesn't understand the value of trees. He understands the value of comps with other properties sold for. So what's the value of, let's say you got two houses. They dramatically look the same. They have the same floor plan, same size yard, same climate, same orientation to the sun, same amount of shade, same amount of exposure. Like they are the same house. One is in a neighborhood where no one knows anybody. No one talks to anybody. You walk down the street, never see anyone. 
you see somebody, they're dumping the garbage out, and you're lucky if you get it, right? Kids don't play. There's kids, but you don't ever see them. They're all inside, or they're all doing activities away from home, yeah? Sterile. If in other neighborhood, same houses, same house, you know, live in that house. Neighbors are interconnected at a high level. Everybody basically gets along. You walk down the street, you see groups of people talking together. You see kids playing. You look in backyards, you see gardens. You walk through the neighborhood, and there's an area that was clearly designed to be a gathering spot. There's people there. There's paths and spaces through the neighborhood. There's an open field that kids can get together and play in. Where do you want to live? Now, a, a, a normal human being is going to answer that question one of two ways. The second one, with all that shit going on, or I don't like people, and they still don't want to live in the first one. They want to live out in the farms or something. Normal human beings are going to gravitate toward the opposite end of what's normal. So why is normal what people don't want? Because it was designed that way. You're being controlled. You're being manipulated. When you live in that suburban home on that 10th acre and you don't know the name of anybody that's house, that property line touches yours or anybody across the street from you in those three houses, you don't even know those people. That is not normal. That is not normal. They have designed the system to work that way. They have designed the system. So that if your neighbor puts the wrong political sign in their yard, you feel like going out in the middle of the night and pissing on it. This is intentional. And this is why all of the things that I'm talking about that are perfectly normal things in society. That is why a peasant in the 1600s in rural England ate better than most Americans do today. Infinity. Okay. This is normal behavior. To see to your food security in your backyard, to see to your neighbor's security, because you know if your neighbor is secure, you're more secure as well. This is normal human behavior. To not hate somebody because they have a difference of opinion you is normal human behavior. The reason they have driven all of the, all of this divisive shit is because unified people are difficult to control and the entire system is bent on your control. So you either build your own system or you will be controlled. I don't care how free, you know, I always said, like, if you are free in your mind, you can't possibly be enslaved unless you believe yourself to be free in your mind falsely. If you are living and behaving in an abnormal manner that does not suit who you are as a being, you are not free. You're not free. You're not free. If COVID really affected your life other than employment, then you're not free. You guys know, I'm not talking out of my ass here. When COVID came in and put lockdown, my life looked the same. Now, it helped to be in Texas. But even for that first month and a half, when they did like close the restaurants and shit, our life was like, we're doing what we want anyway. And we didn't care. We didn't sit at home and binge Netflix and get drunk all day. Right? We just went on with life. We, we homeschooled our kids and it became actually a blessing because by having to do it for six weeks at the end of the school year, my son and my daughter-in-law got to see what it looked like and gave us their permission to homeschool them long term. Right? That's because we actually our actions and our thoughts are the same. And everything I'm talking about today that makes the planet more normal, because 
A healthy ecosystem is normal for planet Earth, involves the largest keystone species living and acting in a way that is normal for that species, normal and natural. You think about this fact. Humans are native to Earth. We are as native as a bumblebee. We're as native as a deer. We're as native as an antelope. We're as native as an elephant. Take the poster animal for your version of born free, wild America, whatever. The polar bear, the seal, I don't care, the freaking whale, the dolphin, whatever. We are as, there is nothing on this planet that is any more innately native to it than we are. And we are a keystone species in that everywhere we go, we drastically affect everything around us. We are the most significant keystone life form on the planet today outside of microscopic life forms. We, we are in our arrogance. We think we're the keystone species. We're the keystone species that you can see before you put things under a microscope. The fungi and the bacteria of this planet are far more keystone than we are, but we're up at the top. How can the planet be environmentally healthy if the keystone species is not living environmentally normal for the species? And I'll tell you what's not normal. Growing giant fields of soy to make a white curd to eat as protein along with crickets in a giant steel building that acts like a city in of itself. That is not environmentally normal for the human being. The human being is supposed to go outside. The human being is supposed to pick things up and eat them off the ground. The human being is a horticultural being. We are a horticultural species. We are designed. If you look at a human and how we are designed, nothing else can cultivate, again, other than bacteria and fungi, nothing else can cultivate plants the way we can. Nothing else can cultivate animals through animal husbandry the way that we can. This is what we have naturally evolved to do. But we have taken our ability with our giant brains and our math and our propensity for laziness and somebody else doing it and the fact that we are led and controlled by sociopaths and psychopaths drastically pull us away from what is natural, normal behavior. And then we expect the people that did that to us to make everything super green and special. And it is it is an asinine thing. But I want you to think about, like, suburbs can easily produce a quarter of their own food. And this is what I mean. Not every family producing 25% of its own food. Every suburb having enough people active and exchanging that overall the suburb itself consumes from outside 25% less resources in total. It's totally doable. Is it doable in 10 years? Without like my ability to brainwash everybody, no. And nobody has that power. So tactically, would it be doable? Yes. But this is a seven generational project in my view. But if not us, who? And if not, no, now when? Who starts? If it's going to take seven generations, we should have started three ago. Instead, we divorced ourselves from it three ago. And we lost it. It's going to take time to get it all back. You can lose it way faster than you can build it back. But it is doable. Backyard gardens and perennials, 
urban farming and spin farming. This is where this goes to a different level. If you look at people like Curtis Stone, who he doesn't do it anymore because he's decided to go off into his own like kind of remote property and, and what have you, but he made a living farming. He made a living farming. He owned no land. He didn't lease land out in the country. He, he leased land very cheaply in people's backyards and located his farm, which was basically three or four properties, some total about like three quarters of an acre, I think, at its height, right where the restaurants that he was selling most of his food to were. There's no reason that model doesn't work anywhere and everywhere. Suburbs largely have available irrigation. They have a little bit of open space. A person wants food, doesn't want to do work. A good spin farmer can come in. Well, I can put in eight garden beds back there, and I'll give you X percentage of the food, and the rest of it I sell in return for the use of the land. Then you start getting to where a few people are doing an awful lot, but everybody's contributing. The person that gave up the space in their land is contributing. Don't don't ever think that they're rent-seeking or some other bullshit leftist term. Um, planning common ground, nature strips, et cetera. There's, there's so much land out there right now that's in these suburbs and all that nobody really does anything with. Somebody reluctantly mows it. You have these, like, I don't know what we actually call them, what the technical term is, but I know the British and the Australians refer to them as nature strips. And that's where you have your yard, then you have a sidewalk, then you have a little piece of grass between the sidewalk and the road. There's no reason all of that can't be planted to perennials. No, And it would look better. It would block views into your yard from the street. It would reduce tra- you know, foot traffic going places it doesn't supposed to go. There's a lot of places that have plenty of common ground, parks, et cetera, that could be planted to things like in the south, pecans, in the north, walnut, et cetera. Uh, we used to pick stuff like this all the time in community events when I was a kid. Th- that's the 1980s, folks. I'm not like, well, back in 1884, Jack Spirico and his kids, we went out and we picked blueberries up on Broad Mountain. I'm talking 1986. There's no reason we can't get some of us back to where I was in 1986. None. Um, and then encouraging forage. That's another thing. Like I'm talking about, like, you know, picking the blueberries up on Broad Mountain. That was that wasn't really anybody the neighborhood. That was we all got together and went out and we like there's so much that can be done with this. So there is no reason that the average suburb in America couldn't produce within the boundaries of what we call that suburb, 25 percent of its own food. And the way I think to start out with this is the sub instead of suburb, the subdivision and within the subdivision, even the neighborhood subdivisions have gotten so big that they're not even neighborhoods anymore. They're multiple neighborhoods. They don't call them neighborhoods, but when you think about a neighborhood, a neighborhood is about, you know, you're in Dunbar's number world. You're like 100 to 200 individuals make up a neighborhood. That's where everybody knows each other. Even when I was a kid in PA, um, friends that you were really close with that you knew well, you still had your neighborhoods. Like people would say, well, Race Street was one of the neighborhoods in Pottsville. And Race Street was a street, but if you said Race Street, it didn't mean that you actually lived right on Race Street. It was that you're part of that uh, area over there, which clearly was where all the white supremacists lived. It had nothing to do with cars going fast or anything, right? So like the Race Street neighborhood or the cemetery neighborhood or like up where I was in Jonestown, like 
these were all neighborhoods and people within those neighborhoods intimately knew each other. So if we can start with, let's get the neighborhood to 25%, let's get the subdivision at 25%, let's get the suburb to 25%. We can do this, but it all starts with some people who are the pioneers, the people that get the arrow in the back, right? The ones who go first. And Larry's asking where in PA, um, I was from uh, Pottsville, Minersville area, Schuylkill County. So he says Lehigh Valley. So that's not far away. And I did live uh, north of Allentown in a place called uh, Northampton uh, for a few years when I worked for Fluke Networks. So that's definitely Lehigh Valley right there. Anyway, it's always fun to find people that you have that overlap. But let's talk about the economics, though, right? Like there's solid economics in this. It's okay to have an export economy, especially if we're talking about instead of exporting from Texas to Europe, we're talking about exporting from neighborhood A to neighborhood Z, right? Like just in in the, the other side of town or whatever. And there's a lot of product that can be produced beyond food, like compost production. There there's a lot of opportunity and there is a real propensity to create something that looks like a co-op, but maybe you don't call it a co-op. Maybe we use, you know, fediments and things like that in the Bitcoin blockchain world to create some of these things from an economic standpoint for revenue share or something like that. But imagine a neighbor, it's not even a neighborhood, a block, a typical suburban block, a little bit bigger yards, average yard being 0.2 acres, right? So 20, you know, two tenths of an acre, um, typical block. I don't know how many houses that would be, but what if everybody on that block, what if half people on that block, took all of their compostable waste once or twice a week and dumped it off in an approved area where one person took care of composting? How much compost is that? How much compost is that before everybody's gardens fertilized, right? Everybody's shrubs, everybody's bushes, including the rhododendrons, etc. Everything's taken care of. And there's still a surplus. Is there value in that? If somebody in that block is growing rabbits and another person's growing quail and we throw that into the mix and maybe one or two people keep some chickens and we throw that into the mix. We're talking about some grade A, high quality, no worry about residual herbicide, awesome compost. We're talking about something that has value by the bag and not the ton. There's a revenue stream in that. Worms. Anybody can do worms. Worms are expensive. A pound of worms will cost you about 40 bucks. Again, the same material that we would use for compost, much of it can be fed to worms. That generates worm compost, but it also generates worms. Black soldier flies, biochar. Right? All of these things have an economic value to them. Livestock for sale. If I was raising rabbits, I would never sell rabbits for meat. I would always sell rabbits to people who want to breed rabbits or people who want rabbits for pets or people who want rabbits for shows. I might eat them. I might exchange it with my neighbors. But as a marketing practice, I know there's more money in this doe and this buck are both in great physical condition. They're the breed you're looking for and they have different dads. Here you go. I know I can make more money doing no processing, no skinning, no clubbing, selling those bunnies alive to somebody. If you want to eat them, you do what you want. Than I'll ever make selling meat rabbits frozen in a, in a, a cryovac bag. 
I know this. I've priced it. I know this, right? Uh, K-Bong says, um, black soldier fly, uh, hum too bad. Those breeders are so expensive. I'm not sure what you're saying there. I thought I did, but, uh, there's, there's a lot we can do with the black soldier flies as well. Um, backyard nurseries just had Nick on for two hours yesterday, Nick Ferguson. We talked about the fact that, you know, propagating plants is like printing money. I was part of what I was explaining to my granddaughter today was how you can make money propagating plants. And I was showing her all the plants that grandpa has that are really cool that people like. And I was explaining to her what advertising is and how valuable it would be for a little girl who had a plant business to have a grandpa who's a podcaster that could say, my granddaughter is selling plants and seeds and sell all the inventory really fast and not having to pay for advertising. But we're, we're struggling a little bit with homeschool because somebody doesn't really want to work hard on her reading and her math. Well, now somebody's really motivated because we had a discussion about the, well, how would you sell the plants? Right. So we had that discussion. And so we talked about what a website was and how you buy stuff online. And boy, that clicked quick. She understands that. I see this thing. If mommy or daddy says, okay, we can click a button and it comes. And she understands that money goes. So somebody would click a button and you would get money. Yeah. She's really happy. It's okay. So when you get the order, what are you going to do with it? And that took a little bit of explaining. A piece of paper and said, what does that say? She didn't know. I said, what if that's an order? What if somebody just ordered six of the mint plants you made, but you don't know what they are? Aren't they going to be mad that you have their money and you didn't get it to them? Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. So fine. Now you're going to, how are you going to get it to them? She had to think about that. I'm like, they're say they're in New Jersey. You're in Texas. Are you going to drive it to New Jersey? She's like, no, that's dumb. And she laughed at me, you know? And then so it, she found, we got to send it to them. Okay, so when you send it to him, what do you have to do? She's like, put it in a box, right? And it took a while to get to the point. Well, how are, how's the guy at the mail place going to know where it goes? You have to, oh, now we need to be able to write. Yeah. Well, how do you know that you got the right amount of money? How do you set the price? Math. So all of a sudden, reading, writing, and math, really important. So it can be used as an educational tool. But don't tell me for a minute that if she'll take the opportunity that's sitting in front of her, I got a six-year-old right now, but don't tell me I can't have a 10-year-old knocking down $20,000 a year. Don't tell me I can't because I'll prove you wrong if she, if I won't do it for them. But I think that's even a low ball. That's a low ball estimate. There is an economic component to all of this. Um, prepared food products. There's there's a component again, livestock for sale, right? The, there is money right now. Now, what I've learned from people around me that have lots of chickens can't get rid of their chickens, chicks, whatever. Nobody wants them. Why? Because people like they buy things that have a name. So like one of my good friends has he calls them barnyard mixes. They're great birds. But I want red Rhode Island reds or I want this. Or like give them a name. Give them a name. But. I mean, when I went to the uh, feed store last time, I, you know, I always go back. They have a little pet area with snakes and stuff like that. I take the kids back there, and that's where they have, like, the chicks and the ducklings and stuff. And it, there were signs that said they were all sold. And Tegan goes, can we get one? And it was really easy to say, no, we have babies at home, and look, they're all sold, right? And the guy heard me that worked there. He said, they're sold for the next six weeks. Everything coming in is sold before it gets here. So there is an economic component just to things like ducklings, chicks, goslings, guineas, et cetera. 
especially if you're smart about how you market it. Uh, prepared food products, ecotourism like Vibro and Airbnb, et cetera. There's, we talked about that. There's so much that can be done with this. And the, again, the thing is this approach creates a genuine community vibe. I think humans are not just a horticultural species. I do think we are an energetic species. I think we do have a, a certain vibrational state. And I don't want to get real metaphysical or anything. And I, I don't even really mean it that way. I just think that all living beings have an energetic state. Because if you shut the energy off, you're dead. You're an electrical system. The way that you send a thought in your head that I'm going to turn my left hand into a fist is done with electric communication, electrical communication. And the very action of closing the hand into a fist and how tight you make the fist and the ability to, it's all electrical. So we, we exhibit an electrical vibration. And we do have anything that has an electrical state, a vibratory state, can be in sync or out of sync. And most people live most of their lives completely out of sync with their natural state. And this is why, if you've ever been in like a miserable mood, and you separated yourself from the thing making you miserable, and you went somewhere wholly natural, like a walk in the woods, and all of a sudden you come into a sense of well-being, I believe that at least partly it's because, and I think there's a mental component too, that you've moved into the proper state. And all of these things we're talking about are very human behaviors. And so when people start to coalesce around them, you just get this community vibe. People start talking to each other again. And there's been a lot of places where things like this have been done with guerrilla gardening and whatever. All of a sudden, people are standing out in the road, at the edge of the road or whatever, you know, because in the road you get run over, talking to each other, having conversations. And people that have lived in places their whole lives didn't know their neighbors, and all of a sudden they do. So there's definitely a lot of that as well. I want to give you a few books that I want to recommend, and, and I'll bring up screenshots of them as I do for those that are in uh, the video chat. Uh, the first one that really breaks this down well is by my late and dear friend, uh, Toby Hemingway. I first met Toby in 2013 at Permaculture Voices, the first conference. Uh, we became very close friends. We did some projects together. I had him on the show several times. I really miss the fact that I just can't pick the phone up and call him or text him anymore. Uh, but the, 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 one of his greatest books, he's best known for Guy's Garden, but his, in my opinion, his best work uh, was in the permaculture city. And it is about all of the things we're talking about today. It's about regenerative design for urban and suburban environments. And it is more than just how to grow a garden. And it's definitely one that I, I really recommend. It's very affordable. Um, it's a good read. The Kindle version is 18 bucks. And one thing to know about this, if you, if you've ever in your life been touched by Toby's work, he left behind a wonderful woman and his wife. And the big thing that he left behind for her is his books. And so all the royalties from his books still go to her. So that's that's a good way to support somebody who uh, I'm going to tell you as a man, without my wife, all the stuff I do, you wouldn't be getting it, man. Uh, next up, this one's expensive and it's not for everybody. Think of it like if you've got a copy of the Permaculture Designer's Manual, it's kind of written at that level 
but it's called Retro Suburbia, The Downshifter's Guide to a Resilient Future. And it really is about retrofitting the suburbs into all the things that we're talking about today. It's a fantastic book, but not everybody's going to pony up 63 bucks for it. And not everybody needs to. But if, if you're that kind of person that wants to build out that educational library, I think it will really get your mind going in the right direction. It's not the kind of book that you just sit down and read leisurely. Uh, it's more a studious book. And it is very, very good. It's thick. You can beat somebody half to death with it. Um, it's Think of an 80s phone book from a big city. Like it's that kind of thickness. Uh, really dense, really information dense, lots of graphics and things like that. But it really fits right in with what we're talking about today. A different book that I really recommend is Paradise Lot, not Paradise Lot. Uh, this is by Eric Tosenmeyer and Jonathan Bates. Eric Tosenmeyer is the person that co-wrote Edible Forest Gardens with Dave Jackie. Eric is the guy that put the lion's share of the academic work into that two-volume book set. This book is about where he and this, this friend of his, Jonathan, they didn't have a lot of money. And they went to a suburb and they found a duplex. So, you know, we call them half doubles where I grew up. So you've got one big house. that's really two units with share one common wall. And then you have multiple units like that in the neighborhood. And they it needed a lot of work. And since neither one really had a lot of money, they basically said, so since we're both single right now, let's just live in one side because it was livable. Fix up the other. Then we'll move over there. And fix up this one. And then we'll figure out if we sell or what, you know, what do we do. Or we'll both have one in the end. So they did that. And the, one of the first things they did was they took down, there was two little narrow backyards, one for each unit. They took down the center fence and opened it up. They put in a greenhouse. They put in a little little you know, four, four hen chicken coop. Uh, they put in tons of perennials. They did it to the point where they were weeding their own perennials out of the garden. And they were realizing, like, this edible stuff we have, like, there's more than we can eat. And, we like, we have to keep one species from taking over the whole grow bed. So they were pulling it out, and they realized it's got roots. It's a perennial. If I stick it in a they, – they developed an economy out of this, selling their surplus self-propagating plants. They eventually both got married, and then they, you know, both had a half of this this duplex and then built community around that. It's a fantastic book, but it's a great read. It is not written as a how-to manual. It's very uh, very narrative. It's very story-based, and it is a good read. And it was one of those books that I constantly found myself, you know, I, I use Kindle for anything that I can get on Kindle, by the way, um, kind of setting it down and making a note and setting it down and making a note. And I ended up with a lot of material that got used in the podcast from this. So this is of the three that I've given you so far, this is probably the one if you were only going to get one that I would recommend. And there's links to all of these in the audio notes. It'll be up about 30 minutes, 40 minutes after the live stream ends. The last one I actually learned about in uh, Retro Severia by David Holgram. And it is called The Art of Frugal Hedonism, a guide to spending less while enjoying everything more. The authors are from Australia, but in the book, they, they talk about their life, how they converted their home, uh, and their idea is to spend as little money as possible, but live the best life that you can. It is in some ways, um, Possum Living was the book by Dolly Freed that was written in the 70s. 
it's like a modern version of that in some ways and, and much better done, much better done. If you've read that book, um, <clears throat> they also travel to places though. Like it was either Romania or Bulgaria or something. They talk about, they live for two weeks with this person on their farm and how like at night they would go to like some other person's place and people would come and then they would drink like, you know, schnapps made out of the hedgerow fruit or something like that. And it was just, it is just an enjoyable read. And the Kindle version seven fifty, the paperback's twenty bucks on that. This book, the only reason I buy a book other than Kindle today, it's something that I want on my bookshelf. It's something that's incredibly illustrative or charts and graphs. It's a very technical book that has a lot of imagery in it. And that just doesn't work that great in Kindle, in my opinion. Those are the really the only, or I can't get it in Kindle. This book, I would never buy the paperback for more than twice the price. This is a narrative. It is not visual at all. Uh, but I definitely recommend all four of those books. Again, I have them all in the show notes for you. Uh, they are all great books in their own right. And they all uh, bring a lot to the table of the things that we're talking about today. I also want to reiterate this other statement that um, I've talked about a lot recently. I've done presentations on it recently and it's the idea of food security being the first security and why, you know, I'm talking about this from a standpoint of making the world a better place, making and starting by making your house a better place and your block a better place, and then your neighborhood a better place, and then maybe your whole subdivision a better place. And if you can go that far, you've done more than 99.9% of people will ever do. But there's a self-interest at all of this. And one of the biggest lies of government is that self-interest is bad. That the only way that we can fix things is to put self-interest aside and think about the collective good. And the only way we can do that is to have some sort of a master that does it on our behalf. Because even though they're a human just like us, they're somehow sainted because they were voted into office. And given power and authority that the people that elected them didn't have themselves. So I don't know how that power and authority was conveyed. I think it's completely reasonable that you could vote for somebody to have power that you have on your behalf. But I don't think it's reasonable to elect somebody to have a power that you yourself don't have. So if I can't take your stuff or throw you in prison or whatever or throw you out of your house, then how do I elect somebody to do that for me? And so but we've been sold this lie. And the lie has been really based on the fact that if you let people follow their self-interest, that horrible things will happen all the time. Well, this is completely not. This is this is psychopathic thinking. And the reason these people don't think they're lying when they say that they really believe it. People tend to think of others being a lot like themselves, right? So if you're a naturally thieving, conniving, bastard, miserly prick of a person, you probably see the world through that lens, and hence you see most people as being that way. If you're a very giving, generous, caring person, you might know there's assholes out there that are like the first group, but you generally see most of society as that way, and you generally see that a lot of people that aren't if they weren't in this contrived situation, they would be. If they weren't in a place of scarcity, if they were in a place of abundance, they would be far more willing to be more like you, right? So we see people as they are. So the psychopaths see you as a bunch of lesser psychopaths. 
because you must because they can't accept that they're weird, that they're they think they're special, but not weird. They just think they're better psychopaths than you are that know better how to live your life. But when it comes to security, food security is the first security. And and what I mean by that is really simple. If you've ever been to a place in the world where you really don't feel safe unless you're under armed guards protecting you, and I have, you are in a place that also has poor food security. You will never go to a place where everybody has all the food that they could possibly need and feel that way. Doesn't mean nobody there will harm you. But in general, if there's food security, there will be general physical security as well. If you go to a place where there isn't security in food, you will feel threatened and you will not be wrong to feel that way. Because the best man on the planet will do horrible things before they will watch their child starve. And I, I put libertarians to the test with this all the time and say, I 100 adhere percent adhere to the non-aggression principle. All right. Well, if your kid doesn't eat today, they're going to die. That guy over there has a loaf of bread and you know you can kick his ass. You're going to let your kid die instead of stealing his bread if he's unwilling to do any kind of exchange with you. And even the ones that say, you know, I wouldn't do it. You can tell they're lying. You can tell. They don't want to admit it. They're not ready to go there yet. But most, I'd say almost any decent man would steal to feed his child before he'd let his child die. He'd go without food himself. But when you take secure, you take the security of food away, you take the security of every single thing. And Larry's saying right now, the children is everyone's excuse for authoritarianism, not just the left. But this is something you have to recognize. When everybody uses an emotional invocation to control society, even if they're lying, they're using the truth in a lie because they're only doing it because it works. The way you scared everybody into the lockdown and, com and complying with all the COVID's bullshit was the ancestral fear that we all have. Because the human race has been through several bottlenecks where real pandemics wiped out 25, 35, in some cases, maybe 70 percent of the population. And we haven't forgotten that. The fact that there could be a pathogen that decimates society is a thing. So you take the truth and you use it to sell a lie and you make everybody afraid. So think of the children is how you control society. But it is it doesn't mean in of itself it's not true. Men will kill for their children. Women will, too. I mean, a woman will kill your ass dead three times sideways if she can figure out how to do it to protect her baby. And she should. So the first security is food. Always. So there's a self-interest at play here. It's not just about doing better things for the environment. But that's a good thing. It is much easier to motivate society through self-interest in the most positive way possible. And most self-interest is positive. This is another lie that you've been told. You think, well, self-interest, I just steal everything. No, because that's bad self-interest because everybody will know you're a thief and they'll beat the shit out of you, ostracize you, and maybe kill you. And we don't need a state for that. I promise you, if there's no state, doesn't exist, true anarchy, middle of Siberia, 
One guy starts stealing shit. Once the town, the community, the tribe, call it whatever you want to, figures out who that guy is, he has not been acting in his own long-term self-interest. But if we establish that safety and that security, that is definitely in our self-interest. It's very easy once people understand self-interest to get people to act in it. Where the, contri the contrived stuff today, you have all these people, like I said, literally shrieking like circus freaks. Right? It's probably an insult to circus freaks to say that. Shrieking like, like circus freaks anyway. That's the best analogy I have right now about all the things that need to be done environmentally, and they're doing nothing environmental. They have a plug-in hybrid Prius, as though that fixed everything. And they vote for the D, and they, they want you to pay a tax. But they've done nothing. They're not acting in their self-interest. Their self-interest would be providing their own food. Their self-interest would be seeing to their community and their neighborhood and their next-door neighbor. That would be their self-interest. But we just don't teach that anymore. So we have to do it ourselves because the state's not going to do it. They don't want this. And many small towns are in desperate need of revitalization and rebuild. All over this country. There are thousands. I was going to say hundreds, and that's so underselling. It's probably 10,000 plus towns that are ripe for this to happen, that are waiting. And some of them are small enough that one or two families could transform the entire town. I'll give you an example that's more mainstream and more like pop culture-esque and whatever, and it's a non-reality TV show, but there's a legitimacy to it. Uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines, who run, I can't remember what it's called, Fixer Upper or whatever it's called. It's one of those Fixer Up real estate shows, and they operate out of Waco. And they take, you know, they take these people and they show them all these rundown homes and say, you know, you can't afford what you want. But you can afford this with a reno and get most of what you want. The reality is, and I've talked to people, you know, on the ground, they've changed Waco for the better through that one thing. And there's probably a hundred other people like them or more that have done the same that you just don't know about because they don't have reality television shows. And so that's 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 a way. But some of these towns, you know, towns got 1,700 people in it or something like that. A few people consciously living and making an effort and being welcoming, inviting, and teaching others can transform them. These towns don't necessarily need growth. I know some – I've talked to people that, you know, like I've tried to do some of this, little chamber of commerce that want nothing to do with it. They don't want a bunch of outsiders coming in. Revitalization doesn't necessarily have to be growth, though – I think that we have to be honest with ourselves about this. Not all growth is bad, but right now we need some growth to stay level. The, the population of the country as a whole does not meet replacement right now. And fertility levels are going down while people are choosing to have less children voluntarily at the same time. And we have a whole world where people are confused about genders and are permanently altering themselves to where they'll never be able to have kids even if they change their mind. And so I don't think we're going to like be like 10 people left in the country in 100 years or anything. But we have a generalized population decline, especially if you extract immigration from that number. So a small town with a thousand people, 1500 people, uh, the greater area around it having three or four thousand people, 
that is going to diminish to almost nothing in many of these places without some new blood coming in and giving the people that are born there some incentive to stay. And then the other side of it is if you don't do something like this, you either go into total decline in population or you go total decline in quality of life. A lot of the places I grew up when I was a kid, you know, we hung out on the street corner. We drank a quart of beer or something like that. Maybe smoked a doobie, hit it if the cops came by. But nobody was in any danger. Nobody OD'd. Nobody was laying in an alleyway with a needle in their arm. Man, there's places that I hung out when I was a kid, small town, city, and it's less population than when I lived there as a kid, as a teenager. I wouldn't go myself today from what I've seen. And that is because if you don't, it's like a garden. If you don't want weeds, overplant what you do want, or nature will fill the hole. You have these towns that go into decay. If you don't do something to correct the decay, then drugs and crime move in. This is a permaculture principle. And it's what we need. It's what we need to reverse course on this because the plan is to let all these little places decay. They want them to decay. They want your kid to die of a fentanyl overdose. They want your child to die. Now, not maybe you specifically. They want a certain amount of children, when I say children, teenagers mostly, to die of fentanyl. They want these towns to decay on meth and heroin. And, the, and, and if you say I'm wrong, then why is it happening? There's so many things that could be done to stop this, and none of those things are being done. And all of the things to make it more likely are happening with intent. So I can only come to one conclusion. They want a certain percent. You know why they want you to die or they want your kid to die? Because more and more people leave. They want to push everybody into these major metro areas. They want to close the regional banks and move everybody into five, six banks. Total control because power is a fucking drug. One more time. Power is a fucking drug. If you look at the picture, and I'm going to try to pull it up and keep talking while I do it, of Feinstein, you'll see what I mean. And and some of you can just go to my Twitter or my Noster or whatever and look it up. But this, yeah, here it is right here. Let me bring this up. This is the face of someone who is addicted to a drug and has ridden that addiction to the absolute bottom of the barrel. This is rock bottom. I know she's 89 years old. I'm not picking on her for being old. But this is rock bottom. This looks like somebody who's a drug user because power is a drug. And these people are addicted to this power and they will do anything. They will do anything to maintain power and control. 89 years old, worth $100 million, won't retire, was out of the Senate for 90 days with shingles. Sure you were, because shingles makes your eye look like that, not strokes, right? First thing she does, get back to the Senate. This is a power addiction. And these people have no interest in fixing anything. And don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. These small towns need repair. 
And the people in power are what I just showed you. That is the face of power-addicted, psychopathic scum. And they're destroying the very places that need to be rebuilt. Now, you can either participate in the rebuilding or they will build their version of society on top of your bones. Probably not what you thought you were going to get today. But it's truth. I try to bring you truth. And just one more time before we wrap up, friends and neighbors. This is not that different from how people lived not so long ago. The way I'm describing life, not quite with the level of intent behind it, is not far off from how I lived as a teenager in the 80s in rural Pennsylvania. I know it's not far at all from how my dad lived growing up in the 50s. I know it's not. I know that everything I'm telling you was just more the case in the 1950s. My father told me, and my dad is in his 70s now. He told me he remembered when they put the bathroom in the house. Remember when they put the bathroom in the house? And up until then, I'm like, well, what would you do? And we had an outhouse. We had an outhouse and we had a tub he boiled water for to take a bath out in the shanty. Now, I'm not for going back to that, but again, this is this is my father. This is one generation for me. So all the things we're talking about today, what we have now is an ability to communicate, an ability to network so beyond what generations, four or five generations had ago. We have more knowledge. We have more technology can apply to these things. Like You weren't automating your garden's irrigation in 1950. You just weren't doing it. And you certainly weren't doing it in 1850. Right? You weren't, like, you weren't setting up uh, a, a live feed camera where you could check on a remote property while you're not there. You, there's so, you weren't selling your, your stuff, your high-end compost-infused biochar, to somebody four states over. In 1955, you weren't networking and learning how to fix a problem you have on your property from somebody that's a thousand miles away and exchanging value with them in 1955. We have so many advantages they never had, but we're not that far off in time. And we are the exception. We are the exception to normal human living. There's been cities as long as there's been civilization, call it 10,000 years. But even 500 years ago, 95% of the population of the planet lived in what we would call a rural community today. Even when they, people said they lived in cities, people don't even know what a city was 100 years ago. You had a very small area in the middle where very rich people lived. You had a ring of people that were a little bit more affluent, and then most people lived in what we would consider very, very rural environments, even if they could easily walk 30, 40 minutes into town. And society has turned into this donut expansion, right? You still have the dead center where the richest live, and then the blue-collar world grew around that, especially after World War II. It's when it really blew up in the suburbs, and then the suburbs got exhausted, and the middle class moved a little bit further out from the urban area, and it went into decay, and it's just... Like I talked about with Guy Swan this week, it just does that outward expansion. People live further and further from the urban center. It's where all the rich people, the rich people who are actually what? Middle class. And as they wear out that suburb, 
in about 20 years, 20, 25 years, all the houses start to fall apart at the same time. Before they start to fall apart, people migrate out. People migrate out and it just goes into decline. And there's so many places where that happened on a minimal scale. Town was never more than 10,000 people. Now it's six. So much can be done. It's a ripe opportunity for people, especially you young folks. You know, if I was younger and not married, I'd be looking for a town like this. I'd be looking for and I would then I would start networking and bringing people in. And I would revitalize one town and say, that's enough for any one some bitch to do. It really is. But maybe maybe document it. Create a template. And we need a thousand different templates so that people can adopt them to their own needs. It's just not that much different from how we all live. Guys, I appreciate you tuning in today. Real quick at the end, want to remind you guys, there's a lot of ways you can support us. You can follow me on Noster. If you like what I do, you can zap me there. Uh, you can listen to the podcast on a podcasting 2.0 app like Breeze or Fountain or any of the podcasting 2.0 apps out there. You can stream Satch. You can boost the show. I really appreciate everybody does that. Best way to support the show, do your online shopping, starting at tspaz.com. If you do that, you help us out no matter what you buy. And my item of the day, I'll be real brief on today because we went long again and because it was the item of the day yesterday, but it's shoe goo, shoe repair adhesive. Um, this stuff just saved my butt. Plain and simple, I took my wife on a vacation to walk through the thousand-year-old redwood forest. That was why we were there. Pretty good hike to get into the place. And two days before we were supposed to go, one of my boots decided it wanted to disintegrate itself and fall apart. So I was either going to spend, you know, a day trying to find a decent pair of boots locally in this little tiny ass town of 7,000 people uh, that we were in called Fort Bragg, or I was going to fix my boots. So a $7 tube of Shugu saved the entire purpose of a very expensive vacation with my wife, which was spending time in those forests. This is something every prepper should have in their kit. Every backpacker should have in their kit. And I've heard from tons of you guys that either are or were skateboard kids at one time. And apparently this stuff's huge with the skateboard community, but it really, really works. And it just works great. And it works great all the time. So I highly recommend that. You can always support us no matter what you buy. Just begin your online shopping starting at tspaz.com and everything you do see reviewed there. I own it. I bought it. I'd spend my money on it again, or I would not recommend it. Remember links to everything that I talked about today, including all the books I mentioned are in the audio show notes. There's a link for that down in the video notes. If you're listening to the video, you can get over there about 30 to 40 minutes from right now, which is 1141 PM Thursday, May the 11th. No, it's not. It's 1.41 p.m. Wow, I was going to be done early. Uh, anyway, you could do that. Expert Council Q&A show of the week coming for you tomorrow. It's been a couple weeks since we did one of those while I was gone. And uh, last but not least, do consider becoming an MSB member. That's a Member Support Brigade member. I always say this. If you hate me, you think I'm just like, this guy's a jerk, and I don't mean it in the nice way that everybody makes a joke about. Um you probably should still be a member if you buy the stuff that we get you discounts on. I got an email from somebody yesterday. They said they did the math. Last year, they saved $387 on a $50 membership. They said, and I'm like, so you got $387 worth of discounts. He said, no, no, that's after I factored in my $50 annual rate, I saved $387. So that's a net profit of almost 400 bucks by being a member Tried to make it that way so that it's easy to be a member. With that, I'll catch you guys tomorrow with that expert council Q&A. It looks like we'll have 
shows most days, new shows most days. There'll only be like one or two rewinds next week uh, when I get down to Excellent Build. One last call out for Excellent Build, guys. Again, the if you get a VIP ticket, the meal is insane, and you'll get to go out to, as far as I know, John's going to do it at his uh, place again. It is pretty freaking cool, and you can hang out with me. Mike Reynolds, Nicole Sauce, and other cool people. Love to see you there. Catch you guys tomorrow. No live stream tomorrow. Expert Q&A is not a live stream. Though I keep threatening someday we'll do an expert panel uh, live stream. But uh, we'll be back Monday with another live stream. Remember, you can always find the latest live streams up and coming. TSPCLive.com Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? You should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month.